0: morning we begin a brand new Christmas series called The Wonder and looking at the Christmas story up close again and our hope is that it restores the wonder. It's real easy to get removed from it and every year for us as believers to forget the miraculous story that took place and my hope is today that we never stop believing that the same God that brought his son Jesus to a manger over 2,000 years ago and did a miracle can still do those miracles for us. And the truth is, he can. And we have to believe that. And if we're not careful, we become so familiar with our faith that we become cynical and skeptical, and we move away from the miraculous intervention of the immaculate conception that took place many, many years ago, the virgin birth of Jesus. Let me ask you a couple questions. How long does it take for you to begin to doubt in what God can do for you? Or what keeps you, your faith brimming with hope? What keeps you trusting and living with hope against hope? What is it that you finally say, I give up. I, I, I can no longer believe that can happen in my situation. What is it that causes you to hit the pause button in your relationship with God and say, that's just too big. My God could never do that. Instead of saying, my God is bigger than that, my God is bigger than that. We were in conversation with our younger son, Isaiah. He's home for, for a Thanksgiving break at our house. And we were talking a little bit about this story, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, that we're going to look at today. And he was telling about a, a man that came to Grace College and spoke in chapel. And he was sharing his story. And he was saying, Dad, it was such a powerful story. Listen to Kevin Hines speak. And he's a guy who tried to take his life. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge wanting to end his life. And as soon as he jumped off, he knew what he had done. He regretted the decision he had made. And by God's grace and miraculous intervention, his life was spared miraculously. And he spoke in chapel that day here in this past session. And Isaiah was saying that he spoke 15 minutes later in overtime and everyone still wanted to hear his story. And it truly is a miracle with what God did in Kevin's life. Here's a small snapshot of his story. Watch this miracle.
1: We're back having a no-holds-barred conversation about the suicide epidemic in our country. Kevin Hines is a suicide survivor who some call a living, breathing miracle. My name is Kevin Hines and this is my story. It was 10 in the morning on September 25th when I got to the bridge and I was there dying. Is something wrong or can I help you? Those were the words that I desperately wanted to hear as I stood atop the Golden Gate Bridge walkway right before I catapulted myself over the rail. So what what happened when you hit the water? The the fact that you're even here seems to be a miracle. The doctor said that had I not played football in the months prior, uh, I probably would have died. And in the water, I hit that water and, and Doc, the 38 people who have survived this fall have all hit in the same way. We don't want to talk about that, we don't want to give people ideas, but they've all hit in the exact same way. The impact reverberated through my legs. It shattered my T12, L1, L2. You know, it, you know it nearly severed my spinal cord. I went down 70 feet beneath the water's surface because when you hit that from that height at that speed, you're going 75 miles an hour, it's a four second fall. When you hit, a vacuum sucks you under 70 feet. And then I opened my eyes and all I wanted to do was live. And I swam frantically only using my arms 70 feet in one breath. It was the fastest I ever swim in my life. And I got to the surface. I broke the surface. And I bobbed up and down in the water. And I prayed, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I made a mistake on repeat. And I, I believe you heard me. Because at that moment, something began to circle beneath me. Something large and slimy and very alive. And I thought it was a shark. I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. I didn't die off the Golden Gate Bridge. And this shark is going to eat me. And, um, and it didn't bite me. It just circled faster and faster. And Doc, I was... I was no longer waiting to stay afloat. I'm lying afloat on my, on my back atop the water, being kept buoyant by this thing, thinking that it's a nice shark. What was it? A man wrote into ABC when I was on there and wrote into the show. A man named Morgan said, Kevin, I was standing next to you when you jumped. It's haunted me until this day. No one would tell me whether you lived or died. There was no shark, Kevin, but there was a sea lion, and the people above looking down believed to be keeping your body afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind you. And how did the Coast Guard get there so quickly? A woman driving by in a red car had a car phone, and she called her friend in the Coast Guard, who was manning the waters of that bridge at that moment. His unit approached me in the water minutes before I was to set in hypothermia and drown. And at the hospital dock, I was leaving the hospital when one of the, form- I, w- I was entering the hospital, pardon me. I was entering the hospital when one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast was, was leaving. And he opted to stay. And he did a surgery that is in a medical journal, the first of his particular kind. He went through a 23-staple scar across my left side. Uh, he pulled out my organs, put it on my chest, and he went to work with a scalpel and some tools. And they removed the shattered pieces of vertebrae, meshed them into a paste, took a 3-inch piece of my 10th rib, did the same, put a cylindrical titanium cage of mesh wiring around it, four pins the size of my index finger, metal plate the size of my palm to my left side. The singular reason I get the honor and privilege to stay and Walk and Run. So why? Why all these miracles? Why the miracle of hitting the water the right way, getting back up to the surface without a lethal injury, having a sea lion bob you up, Coast Guard gets there within minutes of you dying of hypothermia because the wife of the the captain is driving by coincidentally, and then you get the world-class neurosurgeon to put the pieces back together again. Why these miracles? I believe I was meant to be here to share my story so that I can help people all over the world of every age find the ability to stay, to never die by their hands, and to recognize their inner resilience because resilience, Doc, is what evades us from suicide. When we have a lack of resilience, we lose life. That is why we are losing teenagers now. More teens die by suicide today than heart disease, AIDS, birth defects, pneumonia, the flu, cancer, and lung disease combined. And that is a travesty. And when is our government going to fully fund brain, mind, behavioral health, spiritual health, mental well-being, and suicide prevention like we actually matter.
0: Now we can view that story and there's so much more to a story where he talks about God steps in. And I encourage you to Google today Kevin Hines story. And we can look at that and we can come away with two opinions. That was just a coincidence, or God brought a sea life <laughs> to circle around him, to spare his life, to tell others that it's worth living for. The same God that was able to do that for Kevin is the same God that did what we're about to talk about today. It's the same God that sent his son Jesus to a virgin woman who was conceived by the Holy Spirit to deliver the king, Jesus in this manger. And when we stop believing that that can take place, then something has went haywire in our faith as believers. And so what happens when we stop believing that that took place, or we get too familiar with the birth of Christ, that we begin to believe that it could never happen for us, that our situation is too bleak or too far for God ever to intervene. Let me show you, and maybe I hope as we go through this account, that somehow the wonder of God is renewed and the wonder of who he is and what he can do for you is refreshed and reset in the hard drives of your minds. Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up and turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 5 through 17 of Luke chapter 1. And I encourage you to stand with me. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. And turn to Luke 1, and we're going to read verses 5 through 17. Would you read this with me as we stand together? Ready, read. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and both were very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You may have a seat. As you look at this account, we have Zechariah who was chosen by Lot. Now think about this. He wasn't necessarily going to be the guy to go in but by lot, random lot we would say or God's predisposed will or his predetermined will knew that he would go into this place and so that in itself was a miracle that he was chosen among all. We also see that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless people. So the the reason they didn't conceive a child wasn't because of sin in their life. It wasn't because of sin they didn't have a child. It was just the pattern where they were at. They found themselves in. They were unable to conceive. And we also know from this text that they're very old. In fact, it says advanced in years. And from the language we understand that to mean 60s and 70s, far beyond the ability to ever conceive or give birth to a child. So this angel appears to him. And he is startled, it says. And then it says this in verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says this. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your what has been heard. What's he say? Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Every part of me wants to say, What prayer? It's been 50 years since I prayed that prayer. We're now 65, 70 years old. So the angel came and said, your prayer has been heard, probably a prayer that they had given up on, probably one they hadn't prayed in a very long time, and maybe even 20, 30, or 40 years, they had disregarded the effects of that prayer before God, never again to think about it, realizing they are beyond time, but the angel shows up as he's an old man and she's advanced in years and saying, your prayer has been heard. And there was probably a part of Zechariah, his first response, what prayer? Like, i prayed lots of prayers. And I suspect if we were able to get into the mind of this man who was very human, probably never on his radar screen did he think, what? Well, the prayer about that my wife would give birth to a child. That was far removed from the recesses of his hard drive. But it wasn't removed from the recesses of God's hard drive. Let me say this. There, is no, there are no expiration dates on our prayers. Can I get one amen out of that? There are no expiration dates. So the question is this. How long are our prayers still good before God? Like at what point do we give up and say, I'm moving on. I'm going to change my prayer. And I'm going to believe that that can happen. So now, even though I felt compelled by the Spirit to pray this, I'm going to move on because nothing's changed. At what point do our prayers become complacent in our minds that we no longer pray that way? In other words, when does God forget about something that we have prayed about? Or do prayers that you prayed when you were 16, when you were 6, when you were 26, or 36, or 46, or 56, or 66, or 76, have they lost their potency? Is there like are they less valued? Do they go to the bottom of the list of God? Like the Lord checks his list and he say, wait, they prayed about it. Do somehow other prayers trump the prayers that you prayed 30 or 40 years ago? These are the things that Zechariah was probably processing. Let me just say this. The power in your prayer is as potent today as it was the day you prayed it six years ago, six months ago, six weeks ago. Six days ago and six hours ago. Why? Because they landed in the lap of our God. And he takes those prayers and his will is accomplished by them. But let's be real here. Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably given up. And when this angel appears to him, it's no wonder he is startled when he said, Your wife is pregnant and you are to call him John. Look at verse 14. Again, look at verse 14. Just play out the scenario. And he says... In verse 13, your wife, your prayer request has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In verse 18, it says this. Zechariah asks the angel, How can I be what of this? What does he say? Sure of this. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Not only will a child be born, because I suspect that when they pray, they never in their minds when they were, they would say in the years of conception or conceiving, that they ever process probably that their child would be the forerunner to Jesus Christ, and he would go out and proclaim like the thing that they were praying about then didn't have the level of what it's becoming right now. God was about to take the prayer that they prayed and move it to a greater level and do more than what they were asking or imagining. 40 to 50 years later. Keep in mind, it had been a period of silence before Jesus was born for 400 years and prophets hadn't spoken. So it was a dark, dark, dark time. And there weren't many Jesus bumper stickers or sweatshirts being sold at Jesus.com. There just weren't. And I'm sure when they were praying some 50 years ago, all they were hoping for was a healthy baby, not some child dress that would later grow up into camel skins proclaiming that Jesus was on the way. You see, God is bigger than we think he is. Verse 7 says they were both very old. And they had to live with this for a very long time. And for those of you who have struggled with infertility, my heart goes out to you. And when you hear this story, you would understand what Elizabeth and Zechariah had gone through. They had prayed, and they it says that they were righteous and blameless before God. You see, the fact that they didn't have a child had nothing to do whether or not they had sin in their life. It was the complete opposite, because they were righteous and blameless before God. They had done nothing, as we understand, sinful to keep them from that happening, yet Later, Elizabeth would say, you have given me grace because she probably had received the judgment of people in the community who judged them and said, there must be sin in their life, which is so untrue. And so they've been reeling with all this pain and disappointment. And so they asked the question, how, look again, how can my wife basically have a child? Why didn't you answer my prayers years before? And what are you doing, God, now? Think about what's processing through their mind. You see, Zechariah, he simply could not conceive how his wife could conceive. A few thoughts on prayer before we move on. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18 says that we are to pray without ceasing. So... When I think about this story, was there a point where Zechariah and Elizabeth should have kept going and praying? I mean, in their minds, like, this is the end where you stop having babies. So they stopped, and they said, well, let's go another year. Let's go two years. At what point should we stop praying when we still feel compelled that God wants us to? There is never a point that we should stop praying if we believe that God is compelling us to pray about something. Another thing you can look in regards to prayer, James 4.2 says this, We do not have because we do not pray. And one of my favorite coverages of prayer is found in Revelation chapter 5. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. John is on an island of Patmos, and he's having this vision of heaven. And as he looks into heaven, God reveals to him through this vision what happens to our prayers. I find this very, very, very powerful. In Revelation chapter 5, the last book of the New Testament of the Bible, it says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, Picture John, if you can. He's looking to heaven, and this is what he's seeing. He says in verse 8, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the what of God's people? Prayers of God's people. So we know in heaven, as John alluded to here and he saw, that there are these bowls of incense that carry and hold the prayers of God's people. So the question is this, at what point in our minds do we think, well, I got too many other ones piled on top of that one, that God doesn't have time for this one on the bottom, or this one is less important than the 10 I just prayed yesterday, or this last six months. And at what point does God give up on those prayers that we've been praying for for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 months? Or is there a time? Or does he hold on to them and does he answer them? Or do we give up as we continue to pal prayers upon prayers? Watch what happens to these prayers. Look at Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. John goes on and he gives this picture of heaven. And it says in verse 3, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer. With the what of all God's people. What's it say? Prayers. prayers. On the golden altar in front of the throne. And then it says this, the smoke of the incense together with the what of God's people, prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. When the angel took the censer, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the what? Earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of lightning, and an earthquake. We get this picture that These prayers were brought before God. And it says there comes a point when all these prayers that are offered, finally there's breakthrough and the angels throw it to earth. There's peals of thunder and lightning and breakthrough comes often when we least expect it. But where did the breakthrough come from? From the prayers that had been offered for years. And finally, there was breakthrough. So who gives up? First, we do. God never does. And so the prayers that you and I have been praying for years, hold on, church, hold on, because God's coming through. But we give up way too soon. And Zechariah, this angel, comes and tells him he's going to have a child. And I want to say, dude, do you need any more proof than a talking angel? (laughs) Like, take a look around. There's an angel talking in front of you. You better believe it regardless of how big and impossible it might seem to us, nothing, nothing is impossible for our God. Nothing. Our prayers are collected by God, but never discarded of. Can we take heart in knowing that everything you have ever prayed about God, he keeps track of it? Everything. Can we find comfort in this statement here? god forgets your sins but not your prayers (laughs) can i get an amen to that can i ask you a question then are there prayers in your life that you feel like god has pressed the mute button on i got good news this could be the day that the answer comes (laughs) And not only does an answer come for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's far better than they ever prayed or imagined it to be. They were going to have the forerunner of Jesus Christ in the womb of his wife who would proclaim to the world that Jesus is coming. Where have you given up hope on our great God? What is something that you have prayed about and have totally forgotten about because you feel your time has passed you by? Elizabeth and Zechariah probably have been praying for 40 years before this. Or do you think you're too old or too far removed to ever see it happen now? One of the best things about journaling is this, and I encourage you to be a journaler. When you journal your prayers, guess what? You can go back. And you can say, hey, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 2003, I prayed this prayer right here. And you remind yourself that you pray, and then you can go back and then fast forward, maybe one year, 10 years, 15 years, you can go back and say, look, God, this is when I prayed that, and you answered it 12 years later. And when we see how we pray and God answers, instead of discarding it we can go back and look and say our God is good on his word this week I began to process and think back and look through old journals and go back what are some things that I've prayed through the years and you know what happens when you go back and you look wow he answered and wow he he did it different than what I thought and it was so much better and and just bam 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 and, and one of the prayers I prayed I'd forgotten I'd prayed this prayer God let me be the next Billy Graham, like Billy Graham. Let me lead thousands to Jesus Christ. God, we need a world that needs Jesus. Let me be an evangelist that shares with the world. And I've forgotten about that prayer. And when I went back, I remembered. And then it's the Holy Spirit brought to recall that I used to pray, Lord, let me, let me see the nations, all tribes and all nations come to Jesus. Just use me, God. It's not about me, it's about you. And I wrote this down. And then he brought to mind this week the Holy Spirit. He said, Jim, you were with a team that was in Iraq this past year. And there was a men's conference in Iraq. And this men's conference in Iraq, there were Kurds and there were Iraqi and there were Muslims sitting in a room And your men shared with these men, and your men served these men, and your men were there with Pastor Malath and his church, who I had never known when I was praying this prayer. And then, when the evangelism message was given, 40 Muslims, Kurds, and Iraqis trusted in Jesus Christ. I believe that was an answer. Church, please hear me on this. Where have you given up? Don't give up. Zechariah and Elizabeth, for as best as we can tell, they had given up. God has proven himself to be very capable of doing miraculous things, hasn't he? So verse 18, back in Luke chapter 1 again, look at the response. Here's Zechariah's response in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, here he is, How can I be what of this? How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. It seems like a legit question to ask for some, yet stop and recreate the situation again. And I'll say this again, I wanna say, dude, there's a talking angel in the room, and if a talking angel says it's gonna happen, guess what, there's a good chance. few thoughts about angels before we move on because I think it's very important. We've studied this in our Dudes in Doctrine and Angelology. The majority of time that you see an angel occurrence in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, and in the Bible, when an angel appeared to people, they were afraid. And most of the time, you know what the angel's first words were? Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Why? Because something miraculous almost like took their breath away had appeared in front of them so different than anything they've ever witnessed so different than anything they've ever seen that many of them were struck with fear and they fell to the ground and even in this case the angel says do not be afraid why because something supernatural walked into the room and often the bible When people encountered an angel, most thought they were going to die. And the angel often said, fear not. So look again. Look at his question. Let's just look at his question. He says this, how can I be sure of this? You see, he had doubt and skepticism. And God is about to discipline him for it. Some of you might be familiar with Mary's response and be thinking, well, she doubted God too, and how come God didn't do something to her? Well, let's just see Mary's response. Two different responses. Take a look. Let's look at it. Keep your finger there in 18. We're going to read 26 to 34. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was what? What's it say? Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Also, here it is again. She's afraid because something supernatural is in front of her. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Here's Mary's response How will this be? Mary answered, Since I am a virgin. Here's the difference. There's a big difference in their responses. Zechariah wanted proof, Mary wanted understanding. Big difference there. Zechariah doubted. Mary just wanted understanding. The last time Zechariah checked, 75 year old women were incapable of having children. And before he would ever believe, he needed a previous example. Mary just wanted understanding like, okay, how's this going to play out in my life? Show me what it's going to look like. I believe. But Zechariah, he needed proof. And some of us still do Do what I want to say, go back to the manger. Jesus was born. Go back to the tomb. Jesus' bones aren't there. We don't need proof. We just need to believe. You see, but if we can calculate, then it's not a miracle. Isn't that what we do though? Well, yeah, I kind of see how that could happen. Like, what's happened before, and and like, this is happening now, and an angel came, and yeah, and and this A plus B equals C, and A plus B equals C, true. However, her birth certificate had the words expired written on it. (laughs) There's no way she should ever give birth to a child. Where have you stamped expired where God is birthing a miracle? While some might say he had a reason to doubt because it was a basic biological fact that women this old cannot conceive, an angel of the Lord said it would happen. But even more impossible was a virgin who would give birth. She believed and Zechariah didn't. So what can we learn from just this little bit here so far? We must never give up on our God. Amen? Amen? Never give up. Giving up never improves any situation. And how many of you have just thrown out the white flag, just given up? My child will never, never, ever get back on their feet. It's been a cycle of insanity. He'll never return. We'll never find healing. We'll never be able to go there. We'll never be able to find that. And we give up based upon what our experiences have been. Instead of knowing what God is able to do. Secondly, what can we learn? Man's unbelief will not cancel God's plans for our lives. Can I get an amen for that? That's the case here. What Zechariah doubted, God's plans still prevailed. What else do I know about this so far? Here's what I know our unbelief robs us of the joy of believing God for the impossible. Like, I see Christians who are so cynical and so skeptical, and they have no joy. And I want to say, I get up every day and think, oh, God, you could do this today. There's so much different being a person who believes that God can and is able to and could do more than we ask or imagine, and every day that this could be, it's kind of like I would say, it's like a deer hunter who's hunted for many years. You get the skeptical deer hunter, what's he do? He sits down, and he sits in that stand, and he goes out the second day, and he hadn't seen anything first, I'm not going to see anything today. I've been here yesterday. It's going to be just like last year. What am I out here for? There was no deer. They didn't come yesterday. They're not going to come today. In fact, I haven't shot anything in seven years. Why am I even... I'm going to go back and start. But someone that believes, you know what they do? This could be the day. He could come today. And I could fill my freezer up with some venison. Back straps tonight, baby. You see the difference in the person? Two people who call themselves Christians, serving the same God, knowing the same story, reading it from the inerrant, infallible word of God, can approach a situation completely different based upon what they believe their God can do. And it will rob you of the joy of living life. Like, who wants to hang out with a guy? It's like when I ran my marathon in Cleveland. There was a guy in the first five miles. I'm not going to make it. I didn't train. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to train. I'm going to be less than I was last night. He was driving me nuts. I ran a faster mile pace just to get away from him. But I wonder, how many of you, I'm not going to see anything. What am I doing out here? I'm going back for that third turkey sandwich. (laughs) Why'd I even buy a license? Zechariah wanted proof. Mary, she just wanted understanding. You see, there's a difference between discipline and punishment. And by the way, Zechariah is going to get disciplined here, and God disciplines those He loves. And when there is unbelief, God often comes in and He disciplines us. He doesn't punish us; He disciplines us. And what we're about to see unpack here is discipline. You see, hear me out. Now, you've got to walk walk through this with me. Punishment is when God is paying you back for your sin. Discipline is when God gets out a surgical knife and corrects things in you for good. He is a surgeon repairing or removing an area that's bringing sickness to your body. It's the surgeon coming in and saying, hey, there's an area that needs proof. Hey, let me knock you out. Let me get you under the surgical knife. And know what they do? They go in. they, They draw a little blood. And they do a little magic. They get to your knee. And they take out the bad parts. That's causing you to limp. And they go in there and they, they repair it. And there's a little process. The healing, it hurts the whole process. But at the end of the discipline, guess what? Woo! That's the picture of discipline. Punishment is when God is. But God will not pay us back for the sins we've done. Why? Hear me out. Jesus already took the punishment for our sin and the penalty of our sin and it was dealt with on the cross. There's a big difference there. He won't punish you because that would be two punishments for the same sin and that would be unjust and our God is just. So if you feel like God is paying you back, he's not paying you back. He paid Jesus back for every ounce of retribution, so not a drop of blood remains for you. Amen? But there is discipline, and there are consequences. If we believe God's going to keep punishing us and penalizing us for our sins, then we're saying, Jesus, you need to go back to the cross. Keep going back. Hear me out. When Jesus went to the cross, the penalty and the punishment for our past Present and future sins was taken care of. He doesn't have to go there again. But Zechariah, like many of us, there's times we need to go under the surgeon's knife, don't we? And cut us open. And get rid of that part that's festered up and cancered up and causing damage to our minds and our actions and our thoughts. You see, God disciplines, God's discipline of us is his proof that he cares for us and that he loves us. Why? Because he wants us to bring us to wholeness. <laughs> I read a, an account this week on this idea of punishment and discipline, which I thought was really good amongst many. And this author said this. He says, I was talking this through with our campus pastors. And one of them, Andrew Hopper, who played football in college, said, yeah, you know, this is like when I played football. If the coach is on you, it's because he sees potential in you. If the coach never gets on you, it's because he sees no potential in you and he doesn't care. So his discipline of you is proof of his care about you. When he said that, another of the campus pastors, Danny Franks, said, well, that explains so much in my athletic career. <laughs> he said, I would ask, how am I doing, coach? You're doing fine, Franks. Is that your name? <laughs> what do I do on the next play, coach? Um, Go long again. Go long. Just run out there and stand. <laughs> There's a big difference God disciplines those he loves. Why? So that we get stronger and healthier as a result of the discipline. That's what God does for us. You see, discipline is not God taking your joy away. It's God taking from you the things that will ultimately kill you. So what's he do to Zechariah? Here's here's what he does. Look at verse 21. Look what what happens. Meanwhile, the people were waiting... For Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not what to them? What's it say? Disciplined him. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to what? Can you picture him? Like he wants to talk, I just just, just saw an angel. I'm gonna have a baby, not me, my wife. But he can't talk <laughs> and the reason he cannot talk is because he did not believe the angels words which were from God it would cost him his voice but it didn't cancel God's plans in his life you see God is grieved when you do not believe him And I wonder how many times he's saying to you and me, just believe me. What else do I have to do to prove myself? I don't need to do anything. And when we demand God to prove himself, we are saying, God, I don't think you're capable of doing that for me. Watch the response. So what happens after he comes out? It says, verse 23, when the time of servants was completed, he returned home. Now, picture again. Elizabeth? has no idea at this point that her husband was randomly selected by Lot, a miracle, to go into the temple. She has no idea that her husband can't talk. She might be saying, "woo," I don't know. But she has no idea, so let's make this very human. So picture, he's coming home, he's thinking through, how am I going to tell her this? I can't even talk, and I don't know sign language. Watch what happens. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. So something happened between verse 23 and verse 24. I don't know if he got a whiteboard out and drew pictures. <laughs> After this, his wife Elizabeth became what? What's it say? Pregnant. And for five months remained in seclusion. I have to be very honest when I hear that. Some translation said she remained hidden for five months. I bet she did remain hidden. Who in the world would believe her? And as she gained weight and it was all real low, five months, her friends at the bingo table on Friday nights might be asking, boy, it looks like you've been to the buffet a few times. (laughs) Because they're not going to believe her, are they? Can you imagine sitting around, bingo, I got a baby. (laughs) no, too many trips to the Golden Corral, mama. (laughs) And besides, who would ever believe her? Her husband couldn't vouch for her. (laughs) They go, well, hey, hey, Zachariah, would you tell them what's going on? like, they don't want to. (laughs) You would remain hidden for a while too, wouldn't you? Read on. Look what happens in verse 23 or 4 after his wife remained hidden in seclusion. Verse 25. She said, the Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days, he has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace amongst the people. So what's the response of the people? Finding when the child is born, look at verse 57. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her what? So they did rejoice. They weren't skeptical because why? Well, they had proof. There's a baby. <laughs> and it says this in verse 58. On the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, they were going to name him after his father Zechariah, which is very normal during this time. You would name your firstborn son the same name as the father or the dad. But his mother spoke up because Zechariah couldn't speak yet and said, no, exclamation point. He's going to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Verse 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. By the way, a little side note here that often gets dismissed in the story. Not only couldn't Zechariah speak, he couldn't hear. How do you know that, Pastor Jim? Then why in the world would you sign to someone who can hear? He was a deaf mute. They signed him. And read on here. Look what it says. Her neighbors and relatives found this. And there was no, it says in verse 62, they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a whiteboard. There it is. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And it says immediately after he wrote this, his mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he began to speak. And what were the first words out of his mouth? Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. I'm not, God, I I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Why? Because he knew what happened the last time he didn't believe. I love this story in verse 65. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things and everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. This should cause us to say that nothing is impossible with our God. I had a sweet time with Jesus this week. And I began to go think back prayers that I've offered to God on behalf of family and church and personal prayers. Friends, you And I began to think back, Holy Spirit, help me remember prayers that I prayed over the last 50 years. There's been a lot of them. I've I've known Christ for 53 years. You know what happened? I got excited. (laughs) And this fresh movement of God began to stir in my heart. And this fresh wonder of who our God is in the whole Christmas account was new again. Because this could be the day. That those dreams and prayers that I prayed for you and others could come true. And when you live with that anticipation, it changes you. Because our God can do unbelievable things. Oh Lord, renew that wonder. Help us to realize that we're just not having a conversation with the next door neighbor when we talk to you. And every conversation, every prayer that we've ever offered to you, God, you have record of it. You haven't lost it. You haven't discarded it. You haven't piled up in a bowl with the incense of the believers there. And this could be the day that we see you do. Things that we never dreamed or imagined possible. And not only could this be the day... This could be the answer to a prayer request that we pray, and you could do far more with it than we even ask you. Oh, God, renew the wonder that, God, there is nothing, nothing
1: that's impossible for you. In Jesus' name, amen.